With great power comes great responsibility. Compromise where you can. Where you can't, don't. Even if everyone is telling you that something wrong is something right. Even if the whole world is telling you to move. It is your duty to plant yourself like a tree. Look them in the eye and say no. You move. Never step onto the battlefield of ideas unprepared. Before you enter the fray, you need a plan. And there's no better place to get one than right here on Tactics with host Caleb Colquitt. The Situation Room goes live now on News Radio 1440. And good afternoon, everybody. Thank you so much for being with us here on Tactics, where speech isn't violence, tolerance isn't love, and disagreement isn't hate. Thank you for being here for our big Thanksgiving Day special. I know that it's an unusual time for us to broadcast, but uh, like Thanksgiving dinner itself, this one seems to start at 3.30 and nobody can really say why. <laughs> I always thought that was weird that we start Thanksgiving dinner at like 3 in the afternoon. <laughs> it's just a bizarre tradition. I'm fine with it. I, I like having the big meal in the middle of the day, so I basically eat it for two meals because believe me, I consume way more calories than I need to in the course of even two meals. But the point is I never really understood where that tradition came from. And so that's what we're running off of today. But big uh, stuff going on right now. Before we get into our Thanksgiving Day special, did want to say a big 150th happy birthday to the NRA who has been around protecting America, and it is America's oldest civil liberties union now. So that is really cool uh, that it's been going for 150 years. And so a special happy birthday to the NRA, which turned 150 since we last had a broadcast. Also, with the Thanksgiving Day special that we're going to be doing, you may be aware that we do this every year, that we have at least one president where we look at their Thanksgiving Day proclamation. And a lot of people don't realize the rich history of Thanksgiving. It is my favorite holiday. I Yes, I know everybody says, what about Christmas? No, I like it better than Christmas. I really do. I, it's, it's one of my favorite holidays. And it's because if you understand the history of it, you understand not only the history with the pilgrims and the Indians, which people know, they're really just more familiar with it than actually know. But that wasn't really merged with Thanksgiving until the Civil War when Abraham Lincoln kind of merged the two with his Thanksgiving proclamation when he reinstituted it. The original Thanksgiving, at least from the legal perspective, of course, the, the Thanksgiving feast happened with the pilgrims long before this happened. But the original Thanksgiving, in the sense that we celebrated it as an official national holiday, that started with George Washington. And its real name is not Thanksgiving. Its real name is a national day of prayer and Thanksgiving. It was changed later and shortened to just Thanksgiving to be more generic, but it was always understood that this was a Christian holiday. This was a day for Christians to get together in their homes and their places of worship, and you see that actually mentioned in many of the older Thanksgiving Day proclamations. That's actually the original purpose of Thanksgiving. And even if you go back to the original tradition of Thanksgiving feast, the first two, I believe, were big feasts where the Native Americans and the pilgrims got together and had a, a meal with one another. But the third Thanksgiving was actually a time of fasting. And so instead of picking out, they actually did the opposite and ate no food and spent, it in, uh, spent that time in prayer and thankfulness to God for providing for them. And so if you understand the history of Thanksgiving, you understand it's about a lot more than just getting together with family and picking out. It really does have a really rich religious history. 
And that's one of the things that we've always tried to reflect here. This is my fifth year doing a Thanksgiving Day special. So thus far, we have gone over Washington, Lincoln, Coolidge, and Reagan. And so now for our fifth year, we're actually going to go to a proclamation that was given by Dwight D. Eisenhower. And so we're going to be going over that today. The Thanksgiving Day Proclamation is something that the president does every single year. Because the thing that a lot of people don't realize is there is a an act that was passed by Congress, and actually Eisenhower is going to mention that in our Thanksgiving Day Proclamation. But it's still something that has to be issued by the president every year for Thanksgiving to be considered a national holiday. Now, we all know it's going to happen. The president's always going to do it. But the point is the proclamation still has to be issued. And these are usually very short. But the further back you go in history, the richer they are when it comes to religious content. You'll see the Bible indirectly quoted. You'll see references to its sort of origins of prayer and worship. And so I do encourage you, as I do every year, with your family to either read the original proclamation or one by Abraham Lincoln or one of the ones that we've shared here on the show before, do that and, and point out that this holiday is a lot more than just getting together and eating. Because if you understand the actual background of it, you, you may find out that it's actually one of your favorite holidays too. And having that background and having that sort of uh, understanding of the history really gives you a, a much deeper appreciation for it. And it also instructs us that we're supposed to spend today not only, you know, maybe going around the table once and saying one thing that we're grateful for, which is not a bad tradition. I'm not, not, not saying that we should stop that or anything. But I do think it would encourage us to be a little bit more prayerful, a little bit more centered, and treat this as the spiritual holiday, which it actually is supposed to be and was always intended to be. So with that being said, let's go ahead and get on to our uh, our first let's see if I can get it here. There we go. Um, go ahead and go to our Thanksgiving Day proclamation. This is the proclamation that was issued by President Dwight D. Eisenhower, former general from World War II. And this one was issued in the year 1956. So let's go ahead and I will read it in its entirety. And then we're going to go back through some of the content and I'll do a little bit of explanation. So here we go. Dwight D. Eisenhower. With the completion of the cycle of winter and summer, seed time and harvest, we come to the traditional time of Thanksgiving, when our minds and hearts turn to Almighty God in grateful acknowledgement of His mercies through the year. Let us be grateful that the foundations of freedom in our nation grow stronger with each passing year, giving hope to the fettered peoples that they may walk as free men unafraid that the yield of our soil and the production of our factories have been abundant, enriching in our lives, and enabling us to share our bounty with less fortunate ones in other lands. And the forces of nature are being harnessed for peaceful purposes, bringing limitless possibilities of comfort and happiness both to ourselves and to future generations. It is also fitting at this season, that we should consider God's providence to us through our entire history. Let us remember the Pilgrim Fathers who, fleeing from religious oppression, landed on a bleak, forbidding shore and began to carve out what became this great republic, which it is our happy destiny to love and serve. For their foresight, their courage, and their idealism, let us give thanks to the power which has made and preserved us a nation. 
humbly aware that we are a people greatly blessed, both materially and spiritually, let us pray this year, not only in the spirit of thanksgiving, but also as suppliants for God's guidance to the end that we may follow the course of righteousness and be worthy of his favor. Now, therefore, I, Dwight D. Eisenhower, President of the United States of America, in accordance with the joint resolution of Congress approved December 26, 1941, which designates the fourth Thursday in November of each year as Thanksgiving Day, I do hereby proclaim Thursday, this 22nd day of November of this year, as a day of national thanksgiving. On that day, let us, let all of us, of whatever creed, foregather in our respective places of worship to give thanks to God and prayerful contemplation to those eternal truths and universal principles of Holy Scripture which have inspired such measure of true greatness as the nation has achieved. And let us, as the beneficiaries of that this greatness, give good account of our stewardship by helping those in need and by rendering aid through through our religious organizations and by other means to the ill, the destitute, and the oppressed in foreign lands. In witness whereof, have I have hereto set my hand and caused the seal of the United States of America to be affixed, done at the city of Washington this twelfth day of November in the year of our Lord 1956 and of the independence of the United States of America, the 181st. Now, you kind of see what I was talking about there, right? You see over and over again that one of the things that is common in these proclamations, especially the further back in history you go, and this one was about 70 years ago now, uh, not quite 70, but close to it. And so you see that there is a richness there. They, there is an understanding of our religious history and the religious background of Thanksgiving Day in its original purpose. And that's one of the reasons that I really love doing this particular special every year. It's something that is incredibly uplifting to me because I get to do a little research into history and it really shows not only the religious background and history and heritage of Thanksgiving, but really of us as a country as a whole, that we were the first nation in world history, as far as I'm aware, that actually established a day specifically set aside to give thanks and it became a national holiday. I tell people, and I joke about this, that Thanksgiving is the only religious holiday that I celebrate. And it is funny, but it's it's also based in something that is true because people today think it's funny because they don't really think of Thanksgiving as a religious holiday, but it always was intended to be that way. And so if you understand that background, it really gives you a great appreciation for that. So what I'm going to do now is we're going to go back through that speech, just sort of not line by line, but section by section. I'm going to point out a few things that I noticed there. So we'll go ahead and go back to the beginning here with uh, Ike's speech. So the first thing I want you to notice here is he starts out very unapologetically saying that this is something where our hearts need to turn back to God. Now, he doesn't make any distinction through denominationalism or anything like that. He just says, look, regardless of your creed, he'll actually say regardless of creed later on. But he's saying regardless of your religious background or what you believe, Basically, this is a day that our hearts need to turn back to God and be grateful and acknowledge that our blessings come through him. And so I, I love the unapologetic 
de uh, demeanor here because we've gotten to a point to where so many of our politicians are scared to even mention God or afraid of offending somebody or not being inclusive enough. This used to not be an uncommon thing. He's not trying to make some kind of specifically overtly religious point. He's just saying that that is the purpose of the day. We're supposed to be looking back at God, looking at what he has done for us, and therefore being grateful for what he has done for us throughout this year. And the second one makes a really interesting point that I has never really been made in one of these Thanksgiving Day specials. But really what he's saying here is that America being strong gives us hope. And it gives hope to those that don't have freedom. So you'll see there, one of the things he talks about is an unfettered peoples that they may walk as free men. Well, what's that a reference to? When he says fettered, he means people that are in bondage, people that are in chains. And that's something that you don't really see from American presidents recently. Um, with with Biden or Obama, there was an aspect of it with Trump, but I don't even remember him saying it all that often. But the truth is, America is the greatest hope for freedom for people across the world. Yes, we have our problems. Lord knows I talk about them as a career. But that doesn't change the fact that there have been millions of people around the world that are not Americans that got their freedom because they either had countries or had revolutions that followed in our footsteps. And the ideas that America was based off on, the, the, the ideas that are espoused in the Declaration of Independence, that we are a free people, that all men are created equal by God, and they are given their by their creator certain inalienable rights, and that the government's job is to uphold those rights, that idea has been a beacon of light and hope for people across the world. And it's incredibly disheartening to see so many people, politicians, people that claim to love America and care about America, but seem to only be able to talk about and recall the evil things that America has done. And those things do exist. I'm not saying that every criticism is, is fair, but I am saying that there are occasions where America has done something that it shouldn't have. But the focus here is to be grateful for the times where we have done good and we are grateful for the blessings and recognize, and this is the point that Ike is making, that our stewardship should encourage us because we have been so richly blessed, because we have been given so many good things by God, we should understand that if he gave it to us, there's a reason for that. God doesn't do anything just half-heartedly. We're not like his favorite kids or whatever that he just happens to give a whole bunch of material blessings to for no reason. No, if, if we're blessed, and this is Dwight D. Eisenhower's point here, if we are blessed, we must be blessed for a purpose. God must have a reason for giving us those blessings. And what would that reason be? Well, it must be because he wants us to do exactly what Dwight D. Eisenhower is about to espouse. The, the president is going to say, if we have those blessings and if God has given us those blessings, he must want us to use them for good. And he's saying it's a good thing that America is strong, is a good thing that America is powerful and has a lot of military might. This is a man who oversaw Operation Overlord. He stormed the beaches of Normandy in World War II. He understood the value of power and how it can be used to liberate those who are oppressed. Nowadays, there's so many people, especially with sort of this historic pessimism, that look at power as a bad thing. That if a nation has power, it must only be used for evil and it must only cause evil. Look, power is a powerful responsibility. It's a huge responsibility. And I don't mean to devolve into a Spider-Man <laughs> lecture here, but it's true. I mean, with great power comes great responsibility. The reason that that is there 
is because we understand that power can be misused and very often is. In fact, more often than not, it is misused and it is misused specifically to oppress people and take things from them. America has done that from time to time in the past and it's not good and we should acknowledge that and try to strive to do better. However, overall, as a net, when you're looking at it from the big picture, when you look at the net value, it's been a net positive. America has caused far more freedom than oppression. And it has been a source of light in the world. And he's saying our power being what it is, because remember, he watched it play out with his own eyes. That America being powerful and being able to produce and having those blessings led to people in France being free, led to people in England being free. That our power has been used to preserve our liberties. And we talk about power as though it's something that's toxic or something that we we shouldn't. I hate that word toxic. I hate that expression. But um, we, we talk about it as though it's something that's that's evil and wrong and it can only be misused. But that's simply not true. And when you look at and really understand uh, the importance of what's being talked about here and, and understand how power can be used beneficially, um, I don't want to get way off into this, but the Kyle Rittenhouse case is actually a really good example of this. That was a case where a lot of people saw power. Oh, we just see a gun. We just see that he had the power to take someone's life. Well, yeah, but what did he use that power to do to defend his own life? And so power can be used in a positive way. You know, a police officer can use a gun to kill somebody that he shouldn't just because he has a personal vendetta against them or he can use it to save someone's life. And so it's very, frankly, anti-biblical to talk about power in such a one-dimensional kind of way. Power can be used for evil, sure, and it is a great temptation because the more power you have, the easier it is to misuse it. However, it can still be used for good, and that's something that Eisenhower really understood here. So let's look at this next part. You know, I love this specifically because I've recently been going through the Torah and I've been writing some of this. So you, you look at the words that he uses here. Uh, he talks about the pilgrim fathers fleeing from religious oppression, landed on a bleak forbidding shore and carved out a great republic. Okay, where's the significance in that? You see, one thing that is running through the Bible constantly is, and I've actually just written a paper on this, it's, it's called The Promise of Land. And if you look throughout the Genesis narrative, the Exodus narrative, and really throughout the entire Bible, there is this idea that God is the one who takes wilderness, in other words, land that is uninhabitable, land that cannot be lived off of, and crafts it into society. The ability that humans have to do that is something that comes directly from God. And you look at it, there are things that are inhospitable that, that humans normally would see as something that is dangerous or scary, and God makes it okay for them to walk through. Think about the 23rd Psalm. It says, he, he leads me by the still waters through the green pastures. Basically, what's, what he's saying is that my shepherd is with me, and so he takes me to the good land. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Okay, well, that's bad land. That's land that's dangerous. But why are you okay? Because if God is with you, then that is okay. And he actually makes that into a table for me to feast at in the presence of my enemies. And so the, there's this running theme throughout all of Scripture where God takes the uninhabitable and the scary and the chaotic and crafts it into something good and useful and beneficial. The promised land was exactly that. It was a land that was inhabited by Canaanites and, and unfit for somebody that has 
a shred of spiritual morality. And because of the Israelites, he crafts it into the land of his chosen people. We see this uh, sort of in a microcosm in the Red Sea. There's a couple times where later biblical authors, the prophets, will talk about how God took something that was terrifying and was, was a disadvantage for Israel because their backs were pinned up against a wall against the sea and turned it into the, the object of their deliverance. He made a road, which is a sign of civilization. He made a road in the sea, a place where there should not be a road. And the Israelites walked through it. And then the sea, the very thing he used to deliver the Israelites, became the thing he used to destroy their enemies. And so I can't get into all of it because we'd be here for two hours. Like I said, I literally just wrote a research paper on this. But the idea that Eisenhower is hitting on is a very biblical idea, which is it is the God of, of host who comes in and he takes the land that is scary or inhospitable and turns it into something where humans can, can live off of and actually be blessed by. Uh, you, you think about this goes right back to the Garden of Eden that there was a land that was good and perfect and whole, and mankind was cast out of it into harsh land that Adam had to till by his own hand to be able to do that. And then later, God brings them back, not to a perfect land like Eden, but back to a land that is hospitable and good, flowing with milk and honey in the Exodus. And so there's sort of this bookending of the story. Um, he doesn't bring them in Exodus, I should correct that. He, he doesn't actually bring them into the land until later in Joshua. But my point of all that is, there is this sort of bookending of the story of God's people to where man falls, he's cast out of the good land, and then God restores the land to him later on. And ultimately, we know, because we've read through the Bible and, and through the promises that Jesus has led for us, through the redemptive power of Christ's blood, we have the ability to go to the perfect land and be restored to the garden as we originally were intended in the form of heaven. So all that to say... Eisenhower actually makes something that is a, a theologically very sound point here, and I'm kind of impressed at it, because he's saying you could not have done this. You could not have crafted America, a good and prosperous land, out of literally wilderness, were it not for God's providence. And this is something all of our founders understood. Ben Franklin made references to it often, and he's probably the least religious out of all the founders. And yet, he understood that without God's providence, we could not have the country that we do. And because of that, Ike is saying that all the way from the pilgrims onward, we've had this amazing opportunity that God has given to us to basically craft out our own country out of this. And we should be grateful for it. And we should also use that to do good for other people. This next part of the speech that he talks about, talking about the, the pilgrims and the, and the uh, colonizers, for their foresight, their courage, and their idealism let us to give thanks to the power which has made and preserved us as a nation. And I'm not going to harp on this too much because I've already spoken about it somewhat at length, but he's saying that God's power is a thing to be grateful for, that power actually can be a good and beneficial thing that helps, protects, makes us feel safe, and more importantly, provides for those that are needy. And the more power we have, the more influence we have, the more wealth we have, the more we can share it with other people. doesn't mean everybody does it, but it does mean that once God uses his power to bless us with things, that we have that responsibility as well. So this next part is kind of a callback to what I was talking about before we started the speech that we've actually seen many times in the different presidents that we've gone through already with Reagan, Lincoln, Washington, that there is a call uh, to pray. Think about that. Because originally, remember, 
this holiday was called a National Day of Prayer and Thanksgiving. And so Dwight D. Eisenhower, the sitting president of the United States at the time, is saying, hey, everybody, pray and be thankful. And remember that, that God's guidance is what got us here. So we need to behave in a way that is righteous and worthy of his favor. I mean, can you imagine a president saying something like that nowadays? I, I'd love to believe that it would happen, but I, it just doesn't happen very much anymore. Trump will sometimes make shadowy allusions to it in some of his speeches. And George W. Bush, he tries to play, play the PC game to where he'll kind of give uh, something that could be interpreted that way, but not really. Eisenhower just comes out and says it, and I love him for it. And Reagan did the same thing. He's saying, look, go out into your churches and worship and, and remember that this is a thing that we should be grateful to God for specifically. So we're some, you know, we're supposed to be gathering in the, uh, in the churches themselves. Let's go ahead and bring that up. There we go. Okay. So um, it, he actually says specifically, hey, we're supposed to be gathering in places of worship. And that's something that we're supposed to be doing on this day. I want to ask you this, and I'm not trying to step on anyone's toes because I don't know of any congregations in, you know, in my church that does this either, but I'm genuinely asking, when was the last time you had a church hold a service on Thanksgiving? Or even just a Thanksgiving, not even necessarily on the day Thanksgiving, specifically holds a, a special service or does something that they don't normally do, a carve out specifically for the giving of thanks. Because honestly, I don't remember any church having done that in years. I remember one time when I was a kid, we had a, a congregation that actually did that. I, I think we had like a special night on the Wednesday before Thanksgiving where we all gathered and prayed and, and talked about thankfulness. I mean, granted, it'll be worked into a sermon every once in a while, but that's something that's already been done. When was the last time your church had a special gathering just to give thanks? And I don't even necessarily mean on in conjunction with Thanksgiving, even though I think that would be the appropriate time to do it. When was the last time your church got together and just, okay, all we're doing tonight is focusing on being grateful? I think that's a healthy thing. And I don't think churches do that enough. I think a lot of times we treat churches as though they're just there to make us feel better. And, you know, to a degree, that is something that should happen, but it should not be the goal. And so with your church, ask some of your church leaders, can we get together and just have a, a whole service dedicated to saying thank you? I mean, do some worship, sure. But even in that worship, can we, can we focus on thanks? Can we focus on the good things that God has given to us? Because I think that's a really, really healthy thing to do. And I would encourage you to do that and, and to be a leader in your church in that way as well, because this is something that Eisenhower realized was one of the signs of a healthy nation when God's people gather together of their own volition without the government prodding them to do it, but he's encouraging that behavior. And so he's saying that that's something that will help the nation and, and be a good, a force for good within it. So finally, we'll look at this next slide here. This is the last one we'll look at. Um, I love this. Let us be the beneficiaries of this greatness to give a good account of stewardship. This is kind of something that I've been talking about for a while, but the thing that you need to take away from this really is that stewardship ultimately is the correct response. It is the correct response to God. And also look that that stewardship means helping those that are ill, the destitute, the oppressed. And so he's saying we need to be grateful for our blessings and realize that we are blessed, but the correct response is stewardship.
In other words, using our blessings in a way that benefits all of mankind and furthers God's will. And, and one of the ways to do that, which, by the way, several passages, for example, Matthew 25, would acknowledge the way that you do that is you take care of the people that are less fortunate than you. That's the correct response to stewardship. God has given us all this power, all this wealth, all this influence. Okay, good. Great that we have that. Thank you, Lord, for that. But now let's turn around and use it to do good and to do his will. That's a responsibility that Eisenhower understood this country had. And stewardship is always the correct response. Doing good with the blessings we have been given is always the correct response to God having blessed us. So I want you to, to really use this as the takeaway. Power is ultimately an amoral thing. And Eisenhower, better than most people, understood power. I mean, this is a guy that was the supreme commander of the Allied forces in World War II. He was commanding not just American troops, but troops from other countries who were not his. He may have been arguably, at the time of World War II, the most powerful man on the planet. I think that that would not be an overstatement to say that. I mean, in some sense, the, the president would have still outranked him just because, you know, he had the ability to tell him to not do something if he wanted to. But just think about that for a second. This is somebody that had more power than most people will ever even imagine. And he understood that power is something that comes from God, and I have a responsibility with that power to use it to do good. And not that it was just him alone, because I think providence played a role into it, and, and also the people that he was commanding. But think about the good that he was able to do with that power. He was able to liberate the oppressed. I mean, he didn't just say this stuff in a speech later as a president. He had actually done it before. And I think that that makes this speech even more significant. See, he understood that we need to humbly have an acknowledgement of where that power comes from and thus use it to do good. Because ultimately, this is what men are called to do. You know, especially in conservative circles, not really so much in liberal circles, but in conservative circles, there's been a lot of talk about masculinity recently, and it's because masculinity has largely been under attack. They talk about violence and aggression as things that are evil and wrong. And again, I hate this phrase, but toxic. Yeah, the problem with that is you're only talking about people that use power incorrectly. Power can be used to do a lot of good, and Dwight D. Eisenhower is a living example of that. Or, you know, was in his time. <laughs> Not now, obviously. Uh, but but a, a personification of that concept is Dwight D. Eisenhower, power that is used correctly. And you even look at people that weren't necessarily men of war that were pacifists. Would anybody say that Martin Luther King, for example, was not a masculine man? Would anybody say that of the apostles or of Jesus? They certainly wouldn't because they, they sort of ooze masculinity. They have an excess of it, if anything. But that doesn't mean that they were harmless people. They had integrated their violence and their aggression and righteous indignation to use it in a positive way to help out people that didn't have the kind of power that they did. That's how you use power correctly, and unfortunately, we've lost so much of that. We, we're telling people now that any form of aggression, anything that even hurts my feelings, is something that should be uh, discouraged and, and you know, done away with. But the truth is, if you want to understand what masculinity is, it is power that is being used correctly, power that is not being used to do whatever they want, power that is used to help other people. That's what masculinity was always intended to do, and that's why God gives us, you know, extra physical prowess, more so than women. That's the reason that he gives us that extra level of aggression. That's the reason that he gives us 
a keen sense of justice. And we're supposed to use all those things to help out other people because that's what the Bible prescribes us to do. God's the one who designed us this way. That means he's also the one that understands the best way to utilize that design. And he understood that, that power is ultimately something that can be used for moral or immoral purposes. There's a great line by King Arthur, and this will be kind of the, the way that I think I could sum up just about everything that I've said so far. It's right when he is surrounded, his army has been essentially negated in the movie First Night. This is when Sean Connery plays King Arthur. And the enemy there, Maligant, he says basically, oh, you've trusted so much in God, Arthur, but here you go. You're at my mercy. Is this what your God does? And Arthur just kind of pauses for a second and he looks up and he goes, God gives us power only for a little while so that we may help one another. See, that's somebody that understands the purpose of power. He understood that his power, his armies, the, the city that he has, the people that he had been given charge over, that wasn't something that he was given so that he could do whatever he wanted. And, and sort of the antithesis of that is in the very next line where the villain, Maligant, he says, my God gives me power to live my life. Okay, well, then that means your God is you. If your God just enables you and gives you what you want in your mind, to just do whatever it is suits your fancy in the moment, then that makes you God. And you've amassed power and you've amassed armies just to serve your own purposes. You see, in that moment, King Arthur is saying, no, God only gave me power for a while, and if he wants to take it away, that's his prerogative. He gave me power for a while, and I like to think that I did something good with it, but if he's taking it away now, so be it. It's God. He can do what he wants. That's somebody that really understands where that power comes from and how to use it correctly. And I think that that's something that we could all stand to do a better job of is to be grateful for the power and influence that we have, even if it's small, even if it's just you're a dad and you have influence over your kids or you're a big brother and you have influence over your younger siblings, or maybe you're just like a middle level manager at a company, but you have influence over your employees, whatever power or whatever things that we have available to us. Those are things that God intends for us to use for his will. And who knows, maybe if we do a good job with it, just like the parable of the talents, God will give us a little bit more of it because he'll expect us to use it to do even more good. So that's really it for our discussion of Thanksgiving. I do have to move to some other local news that is truly, truly tragic. Um, I don't even know how to start with this. Uh, you guys are all familiar with the Sister Schubert sausage wrap rolls, right? You know, the ones that you buy in those little tin cans, you stick it in the oven and like 25 minutes later it pops out and you've got uh, fresh baked sausage wrap rolls. Turns out those have been discontinued. I know, I know, I, I was weeping over it for days. I have, uh, uh, I rent my clothes and spent the days in woe and lamentation, but no, uh, the Sister Schubert rolls have been discontinued right before the holidays this year. I'm not really sure what it is, and I haven't really seen anybody that can give a straight answer on this. I tend to think, just based on my understanding of it, what happened is it's got to be a supply chain issue of some kind. That's what I'm thinking it has to be, and that's just because my sister told me that they've been sold out for months before this, and there have been issues with meat producers being able to keep up demand here recently, and that's part of the reason that you're seeing prices skyrocket and, and that kind of thing with meat. And so... 
since Sister Schubert is continuing to make their regular rolls without the little cocktail weenies in them, they don't have the sausages, and and those are still on the the manufacturer, but the, but the others aren't. That leads me to believe it's probably some kind of supply chain issue, or it could be not the issue that there's a supply chain problem, but they would have to hike their prices, and they don't believe that the price point they would have to sell it for would would generate enough sales to make profit. That could be it as well. I don't know. But either way, it's probably something to do with the economy. I hope that that means that they are going to bring it back before long. There is actually a politician, or politician, petition. Sorry, brain's not working right now for me. I don't know why. There is a petition at change.org that you can actually click the link in the description underneath right here on this video. So if you want to sign a petition to bring back the sausage wrap rolls, you actually can. I don't know if it's going to make a difference and if it's a supply chain issue, the petition might not be able to do anything even if it winds up getting a lot of signatures, but hey, you can't hurt to sign it. I will say this though. Luckily, one Southern woman named Buffy Williamson has come up with a workaround for this. So I wanted to show you this. My sister actually sent me this earlier this week. There is a workaround here. So you can see there that she actually took some Koneka sausage and some of the regular sausage wrap rolls without any sausage in it, just the plain yeast rolls, and baked them up and, and made her own. So, uh, you know, props to Buffy Williamson for coming up with this. I believe she's a Mississippi resident, you know, doing the Lord's work out there. <laughs> See, that's using your power for good right there is figuring out a way to make uh, Sister Schubert rolls. And um, I got to say, with the Koneka sausage, they may even be better. I don't know, but props to her. For that, thank you, Miss Williams, for Williamson, for helping us survive this crisis, and uh, God bless you for that. On a serious note, though, I, I do think it's probably a supply chain issue, and hopefully, they'll be able to resolve that quickly. But on, on the case of Miss Williamson, I love redneck ingenuity. I love that we see a problem, we just try to figure out a workaround to fix it. Uh, that's something that is kind of unique to the South, and I appreciate it. Now, in other Thanksgiving and food-related news, because of course that's got to be something at the forefront of this episode. Apparently Reese's, yeah, the, the Reese's peanut butter cup people. Apparently Reese's has come out with a new dessert for Thanksgiving. And really all I can do with this one is just show it to you. Uh, this is courtesy of WSFA. This is the picture that they put out there. Let's bring that up. There we go. Dead gum. That is a big Reese's cup. And you can see they're basically serving it like a pie because that's how big it is. This is a thing that is available. You can go to your local grocery store and get a giant freaking Reese's cup and cut it up and serve it as a pie. I saw this and my immediate reaction was, don't tell me America is not the greatest country in the world. We're making giant Reese's cups for no reason. <laughs> you can't tell me we're not the greatest society in human history after that. Uh, it, it, and it looks like a pie, but it really isn't. It's, it's really just a giant Reese's cup. So if any of you need a clarification, it's not like some kind of Reese's cheesecake pie or something. No, it's it's just a giant Reese's. So props to the people over there. I think Eminem Mars Hershey owns them. So props to the people over there for coming up with this. Um, you can't you can't look at I'm sorry you can't look at that and not tell me that America is not the greatest civilization in all of human history. That's just that that's one of the best things ever. So props to Reese's for that. Now our next big local story. This one is only kind of food related in America. Deer is a food group. And of course, if you're talking about holidays, well, the start of deer season is always a holiday. 
But there are some people that are out there saying you might need to be a little bit more cautious about hunting deer this season. That's right. Ale.com has come out saying the deer have COVID. So you don't want to go out there hunting the deer because they've got the COVID. They got the Rona. They're carrying it around out there. This is from Ale.com. Like I said, quote, a study led by researchers from Penn State University found that upwards of 80% of deer sampled in various countries in, in various countries, various counties in Iowa from December 2020 to January 2021 tested positive for COVID-19, while 33% of all deer uh, included the several month tested uh, study tested positive. Okay, so first my question, obviously, I think that this has to be the first thing that you think is, um, were they counted as COVID deaths? <laughs> Were they were those on the COVID cases thing? Because I would not be at all surprised that the CDC is counting deer infection as part of the human infection numbers to bolster the numbers and scare people. That would not at all come off as a surprise to me, but I hope that that is not taking place. So just so you know, deer hunters, the deer have COVID, be afraid, be very afraid, because we're panicked that you're not panicking enough. Now, the second part of this... I, I, I love this, their recommendation for this. Granted, I will say, I expected AL.com to just say, hey, everybody, don't don't hunt deer this year. Just kind of like that uh, idiot on MSNBC was suggesting with the whole uh, the, the price thing and, and the price of turkey going up. It's like, hey, just, just skip the turkey this year. And hey, maybe that'll even mean that some people don't show up and you'll save money that way, right? Yeah, family sucks. I don't know how that imbecile is still on TV, but whatever. Um, AL.com did not actually recommend people not deer hunt, which I really expected them to, considering AL.com's usual political leanings. I was really expecting them to just be like, yeah, everyone should just not deer hunt this year, which would have been incredibly stupid. But they didn't go that far. I will give them credit for that. Instead, this was their recommendation. Quote, until more is known, it would be appropriate for hunters to wear gloves and a mask when handling deer. Dr. Robert Salada said, as, uh, as for becoming infected, consuming venison for infected deer, Salada said that it would not be a concern as long as you thoroughly cook the meat. Okay, so they didn't say not to hunt and they didn't say not to eat the deer because that would have been incredibly stupid. There would have been riots at the Capitol if that had taken place. Uh, so that's good. I appreciate that they didn't go there. But they're saying that you need to be wearing a mask while you're handling the deer. Okay, I'm not an epidemiologist. I, I mean, I had some biology at college. I was an ag major, so that was just part and parcel of my degree. So I'm, I wouldn't say that I'm a layman on this. But, you know, I'm not a doctor. I don't really have a, a thorough understanding of microorganism or micro, uh, microorganisms or microbiology. But answer me this one. Typically, when a hunter approaches a deer, it's because they're dead already, correct? And this is a respiratory disease. So follow my logic here. Don't get lost. If the deer's not breathing, how are you supposed to get it from not wearing a mask? <laughs> oh, these people are morons. Now, the gloves thing I don't think is a bad idea. And I don't just say that because of the pandemic. It's probably pretty much always a good idea to have gloves on because not just because of COVID, but because of other things that the deer could have. It's a wild animal. It could have picked up diseases or parasites. It's probably a good idea to have gloves on when you're handling the deer regardless. 
So that's probably the case. I'm not not saying I'm against that. You know, have some rubber gloves on you when you field dress or whatever. That's probably a good policy to have regardless of whether there's a pandemic out there or not. But really, wearing a mask so you don't inhale the air from a deer that doesn't breathe anymore? How stupid are you people? I mean, this is just ridiculous. And good luck getting hunters to actually do that. Like, good, good luck convincing hunters that they need to do that. I mean, they tend to be a pretty conservative group anyway. But really, I, I would love to see some egghead from the CDC trying to explain to a hunter that he needs to wear a mask when he's field dressing his dead deer that isn't breathing anymore. <laughs> uh, it's the world we're living in, man. Either way, I tell you what, we'll go ahead and take a break here and we'll come back in just a minute on tactics. Speech isn't violence. Tolerance isn't love. Disagreement isn't hate. You're listening to Tactics with Caleb Cockwit. If you want to hear more, subscribe to him on YouTube, like him on Facebook, or follow him on Twitter at Tactics Radio. Welcome back, everybody, and thank you so much for being with us here on Tactics for our big Thanksgiving Day special. As always, this is where speech isn't violence, tolerance isn't love, and disagreement isn't hate. Thank you so much for being with us, as always, and be sure to hit that like and subscribe button because that helps us fight off the dark cyber overlords at YouTube. And they are pretty mad at me right now. I'm still under suspension. Uh, I can live stream again and I can put up videos, but I can't monetize anything, can't make any money off of it. So basically my only source of income off the show right now is Rumble. So be sure to like uh, everything that we do on there and watch some of my videos on Rumble because as much as I love that you guys want to watch on YouTube and I'm fine with it, I appreciate the views regardless. I ain't making any money off of YouTube right now. So if you really want to help me out and support the show, go over and, and go to Rumble and that will actually help. And, and maybe it'll also hurt the dark side of overlords at YouTube. So that's what we're really hoping for. Now, we're actually going to be doing something special today. And so we're going to now have a breaking the internet. Oh, come on! Oh, oh no, oh no! Oh, I, I didn't touch anything, I swear! Oh, Ty, what did you do? It wasn't my fault! And for today's edition of Breaking the Internet, we found yet another meme that is untrue. I know it's a shock. I know. I, I, I think I always thought that memes were always 100% correct and never contained anything wrong or misleading. But it turns out on the internet, there are some memes that are just not true. And so I saw this one and I had to do it just because I looked at it and immediately saw that literally everything it claimed, except for one thing, and we'll, we'll tell you what the surprise one thing that they claimed was true, uh, actually was correct. But this is one that I saw the other day. It's from Occupy Democrats. We've done some of their stuff on breaking the internet before. So this was one that they came up with. So you'll see here. So far, Democrats have cut child poverty in half, added 5.3 million jobs, managed the most ambitious vaccine rollout in the nation's history, and passed a $1.2 trillion investment in the water, roads, bridges, and broadband. Trump gave $2 trillion to the rich and tweeted a lot. So obviously trying to draw a contrast between Democrats and Trump, which first of all, as Van Jones, who, by the way, is a self-proclaimed communist, so not exactly a person on the right, as he claimed this idea that 
Democrats can just run being not Trump, saying basically the, the crux of their campaign is, well, I'm not Trump. He said, that's dead now. After the off-year, off-year election that we had in Virginia and New Jersey and some of the outcomes of those elections, Van Jones even had to say, you know what, the idea that Democrats can just say, hey, I'm not Trump and get elected, that's gone. And the reason is because Democrats greatly overestimated the hatred of Trump. Not to say that it wasn't there, not to say that it wasn't a prevalent force, but they have thought that that can just sort of wield them to victory on its own. And, you know, when, the, when it came down to the wire and you had to look at the scoreboard, turns out, no, actually, you can't do that. That is not, in fact, a winning strategy on its own. But anyway, this meme claims a lot of things other than talking about Trump. It claims that Democrats have made all of these accomplishments. So let's go ahead and look at these claims. Okay, so first of all, claim number one, they have cut child poverty in half. No, they haven't. That's really about the only rebuttal uh, that you need uh, because they don't do anything to back up their source. They, they don't say how they've cut it in half. But when you do dig into it and look at the numbers, I mean, it's just abundantly clear. They're just bringing this up out of thin air. Let's look at the child poverty rates right now. So this is from the, uh, you can actually look this data up. This is from the same department that does the Bureau of Labor Statistics, and they, they sort of analyze trends over the years. And you can, by the way, look at all my sources down there underneath the video. You can see them in the description. So this is a line graph of where the child poverty rate is, is a percentage of the total child population. So you'll see it mostly stays, it ventures a little bit below 15 occasionally, but you'll see that it mostly stays somewhere between about 23% and roughly 15, 14%, something like that. You'll see it hit its, it, it actually hit its low in 1969 at 14%. And the reason that I chose these dates specifically, they'll go all the way from 1964 to 2020, because that's the most recent year that we have with the statistics being complete. So I don't even understand how they can make that claim considering 2021 is not over yet. And that is the first year that Joe Biden has been in office. So I don't really even understand how they're claiming this, because if you look back all the way to 1964, you'll see that that number jumps up and down quite a bit. It's always somewhere between 23 and 14. It never ventures out of that. And so Right now, the rate being about 16.1, which again is actually the number from President Trump because he was president in 2020. The numbers for 2021 haven't come out yet. For them to have cut it in half at any point in the past 60 years, it would have had to have been half of 23, which, you know, would be like um, 11 and a half. And so by no mathematical explanation is 16.1 halving of that. And this is all the way going back to Lyndon Baines Johnson's great society and trying to destroy poverty. This was the, the year that the war on poverty started and it started at 23% and it's now at 16. And it was actually pretty close to 23% back in the Obama years. And I'm not necessarily blaming Obama for that, for that. I'm just saying that they act as though, well, you know, putting a, a Democrat in the White House, that just solved all the problems with child poverty, except you can't say that you halved it because at no point in that 60-year history has it ever been half of 23. And if you were going by the more recent numbers, 
that number would actually be lower. So it would be even harder to get to half. And so I don't understand how anyone could claim. I really, it seems like they just really just pulled that out of their butt. I have no idea where they're getting that statistic, but that's what they're saying that somehow they cut poverty in half. But if you look back in the, since the sixties, we really haven't done a whole lot or, or made any progress on that. And that's part of the problem. Democrats really believe that poverty can be eliminated and that it can be eliminated by government interference. But you just saw the chart. We've been doing this now for 60 years. And we've spent over $20 trillion on it, on the war on poverty, and poverty's still pretty much about the same. I mean, it's still in that same range that it's been since the 1960s. So I don't understand how they could claim they've cut child poverty in half. It is just a baffling claim. The second claim that they get to, the jobs have been recovered. Uh, remember, they claim that they have created 5.3 million jobs. Well, actually, those jobs have been recovered jobs, not created jobs. In other words, they were jobs that we had before the pandemic that have been an upswing from the pandemic. So that is true, technically. But they're kind of ignoring the fact they're saying they created them, not recovered them. And so that is very misleading. They, you can't, first of all, when Republican presidents do it, I said this when Trump said it, government doesn't create jobs. Government can transfer jobs. In other words, they can make jobs in the government and then make people that previously were private industry and, and move them into the public industry and government. But they can't create jobs. All they can do is shuffle things around. And so when Republican presidents say it, it's just as stupid as when Democrat presidents say it. Government doesn't create jobs. They simply don't do it. Now, you could say that Trump's economic policies and lack of red tape and restrictions led to more jobs in the country as a whole. And I think that that's perfectly feasible. But you can't say that government created jobs. So they claim that, which is already, I think, fallacious on its head. But even if you accept the fact that government could theoretically create jobs, the jobs that they have gained, the 5.3 million where the job numbers have increased, that's not them. That's a natural resurgence from the pandemic. We lost all these jobs, and now we're getting a little bit back. And the thing is, not only is that not created jobs, because I could kind of buy it if, say, uh, in Joe Biden's administration, we got back to pre-pandemic levels and then created 5.3 million jobs on top of that. Again, I still disagree with the wordage, the, the word choice used there and created, but I would have at least said, okay, you have to give them that one, 5.3 million jobs more than we had before the pandemic. But we're actually still in the hole. We're, we're not even just back to where we were before the pandemic. We're still lagging behind. And so it's an incredibly misleading way to try to portray this. Let's go ahead and look at, for example, the unemployment rate. So this is the unemployment rate going all the way back to 2001. You'll see there that there's a massive spike in the unemployment rate in that little gray area there right after uh, 2019. That's because that's 2020. That's when the pandemic hit. And you'll see that massive, massive spike. And then you'll see it start to somewhat gradually move down. But if you'll look, you'll notice that the civilian unemployment rate is still floating somewhere just under the six-point range which is nowhere near the under four points that we had before the pandemic. And so them acting as though they've created all these jobs, I mean, it's just, it's just incredibly misleading for them to try to portray it this way, considering the unemployment rate is still actually higher than it was before we had the pandemic. 
And by the way, it's not just limited to that. If you look at the labor participation rate, which I've always said is actually probably a little bit better statistic, it's by no means perfect because it, it doesn't really account for people that are like retired or children or that kind of thing. But if you look at the, the civilian labor participation rate, you'll see that it's not even two-thirds recovered. It's about a third recovered at best. It's not even halfway. And so this idea that Joe Biden has come in and all of his policies just created all these jobs, there's no truth to it. We're not even back to where we were before the pandemic started, much less, you know, that being jobs that were created, that we're just bringing back things that were already dead and we're trying to get back to where we were. And so this idea that that was happening, no, that, that's a natural resurgence of jobs that would have happened regardless of who was in the White House. And frankly, based on the policies, probably would have happened a lot faster if Joe Biden had not implemented a lot of the policies that he had. And so there's no way to prove that we're dealing with a what if scenario there. But I genuinely believe that we would have had a much bigger and quicker resurgence if Joe Biden was not in the White House. So what this essentially amounts to is it would be like the mayor of a city right after, let's say New Orleans, for example, because that's one that gets hit hard by hurricanes every now and then. So let's say a big hurricane comes through, knocks out everything in New Orleans, and then people are selling a case of 24 waters for like $90 per case. Okay, well, that's a ridiculous price to pay for bottled water, but it's going for that because of scarcity in that city. Well, let's say two weeks later, when everything's died down and the case of water is back to its, its usual market price, and let's say it's you know, $10, $15, something like that, the mayor gets in front of everybody and like, look, guys, I brought down the price of water. No, you didn't, you moron. The price of water was going to go down anyway once everything started to recover from the hurricane. But that's what Joe Biden and the Democrats are trying to do here. They're trying to come out and be like, look, we created all these jobs. I mean, Joe Biden said in a speech yesterday that I'm a, I'm a job. This has been a jobs presidency. No serious person believes that. I mean, if you look at the job numbers and you just, I mean, look outside and look at all the help wanted ads you can tell that that's nowhere near true. We're still significantly below the levels that we were, even at the pandemic levels. Like I showed you with the labor participation rate, we're not even, but about a third recovered. So no, we're nowhere near where we need to be. And the growth that has happened has just been the springboard that would have happened no matter who was in the White House. But if that's the case, you know, maybe we should, we should do something that's a comparison that's more fair. Like, like I said, we can't really know, like if Donald Trump had won, for example, that the jobs would be significantly better, except there is a way to kind of know it. There is some comparison that we can kind of make, which is, why don't we compare red states and blue states and how they dealt with the pandemic? So which states have better job recovery and have done a better job overall on getting really closer to where they would have been pre-pandemic? So the way that we're going to do this is first, let's go ahead and look at the top 10 states with the most jobs lost from February 2020 to July 2021. So let's go ahead and bring that graphic up. So these are the ones that have the most jobs still missing and still lost. So you'll see number one, Hawaii, number two, Nevada, number three, Connecticut, number four, Vermont, number five, New Jersey, number six, Rhode Island, number seven, California, number eight, Maryland, number nine, New York, and number 10, Virginia. Wow. All blue states. Not a single red state in there anywhere. 
and you're looking at the percentages and they do get lower, of course, as they go down because it's, it's done in, in numeric order. But this is adjusted for population. So Hawaii has the most. There's, they're at a negative 9.3 from last year. So almost 10% of their jobs are still missing. And then Nevada, Connecticut, Vermont, you're still even at the, the top 10, even with Virginia, you're still just barely floating under 5%. And so that's a lot of jobs missing in very, very blue states. And that is really a tragedy because what you're seeing there is they have those crazy pandemic policies that are still in place. A lot of the shutdowns lasted a lot longer. And because of that, a lot of those businesses went away. So those are some of those jobs that just aren't coming back. And so because they implemented Democrat policies and probably because they had some policies that were already anti-business already in place, their jobs simply didn't recover as quickly. So let's go ahead and by contrast, look at the states that have had the best job recovery. Number one, South Dakota. Number two, Oregon. Number three, Idaho. Number four, Wisconsin. Number five, Montana. Number six, Utah. Number uh, number seven, South Carolina. Number eight, Oklahoma. Number nine, Alaska. And number 10, North Dakota. Now you will notice here that there are two blue states in this list, Oregon and Wisconsin. But Wisconsin, even though it's traditionally blue, it's kind of a swing state and always has been. Uh, it, it was blue for about a decade and a half, reliably. But the Rust Belt is not like an ensconched, like New England or the West Coast, the deep, deep blue district with basically all Democrats have been running it for decades now. That's not really where Wisconsin was. It's really more of a purple state, and it went pretty overwhelmingly for Trump in the election before this one. So back in the, the 2020 election, or sorry, not the 2020 election, the 2016 election. And then in the 2020 election, it did go for Biden although there was some contention about that, it did go for Biden, but it was close. And so when you look at those two things, you've got one very blue state, Oregon blue, there's no excuse for that one. But you look at the other states, really eight out of 10 of the top 10 on the best job recovery, all of them very red states. And then you have one kind of purplish state that goes back and forth. And then you have Oregon, which is admittedly a blue state. But I mean, eight out of 10, that's a pretty strong number. 80% of the top 10, in other words, have been states that implemented Republican policies. And so there's no question when you're looking at these two that the Republican states and the ones that didn't you know, go full in for year-long lockdowns and that kind of thing are doing way better on the job recovery rate. Then another thing I want you to look at this chart one more time, you'll notice the percentage there. When it talks about jobs recovered, you'll notice that some of them are in the positive. What does that mean? Actually, all of them are in the positive. It means that not only did they get to pre-pandemic levels, they actually gained jobs. They have more jobs than they did before. South Dakota, 4.6. I don't know how that happened. I mean, that's, that's astounding. And you'll remember they're also the state that didn't shut down at all, never had a shutdown, never had a mask mandate. And they're at 4.6% recovery. I mean, that's better than Alabama, Texas, or Florida, who all had those things in some measure. And then you've got other Republican states like the Mountain West, Idaho, Wisconsin, which I said, purple state, Montana, very red, Utah, very red, South Carolina, very red, and in the deep south, um, 
or it, at the very least the South. I don't know if they – it depends on who you ask whether or not that's the deep South. Uh, Oklahoma, another red state, Alaska, North Dakota. These are all very red states that have had a much better go with the pandemic. And so really, I mean, if you're looking at red states versus blue states, there's no comparison there. And so, you know, Democrats claiming that they added 5.3 million jobs. No, you didn't. And in fact, a lot of the jobs that you quote unquote added took place in red states where your policies were not enacted. And so it's funny that they're actually partially hanging that hat on a, uh, a largely red state accomplishment there. It's, it's really funny to watch that. Um, but, you know, essentially claiming that they have added 5.3 million jobs and we still have 5.1 million jobs that are still missing, that we're still 5.1 million in the hole. And they're like, look at all these jobs we've created. I'm sorry. It's just laughable. There's no truth to it whatsoever. So let's go ahead and look at claim number three, the vaccine rollout that uh, they have overseen and managed the most ambitious vaccine rollout that there has ever been. Okay, well, they have managed the vaccine rollout, and the numbers really haven't been bad. In fact, I think that they've been, compared to other vaccine rollouts in history, it's been one of the more successful ones. That is correct. But one of the things that they're kind of ignoring is that the Trump administration is the one that oversaw the vaccine actually being produced, and they already had a lot of the mechanisms for distribution already in place when Joe Biden took office. And you don't have to take my word for it. And again, you might have problems with the vaccine. You may not have even think the vaccine being rolled out is a good thing. That's not what we're talking about right now. We're specifically talking about the claim in this meme that the Democrats are responsible for the rollout and they managed it and oversaw it and that you should give them a pat on the back for that. And I'm not saying that they haven't managed it fine, but what I am saying is they act as though this is some big accomplishment when really the groundwork was already laid with President Trump. And you don't have to take my word for it. You can listen to the, the great saint of the COVID stan religion, Dr. Anthony Fauci. Is the Biden administration starting from scratch with the vaccine distribution effort, or are you picking up where the Trump administration left off? No, I mean, um, we certainly are not starting from scratch because there is activity going on in the distribution. President Biden said that what was left was abysmal, essentially. I mean, is there anything actionable that you are taking from the previous administration? Well, and is that delaying your efforts to get the vaccine? I mean, that's the question. No, I mean, we're, we're coming in with fresh ideas, but also some ideas that were not bad ideas with the, with the, with the previous administration. You can't say it was absolutely not usable at all. So we are continuing, but you're going to see a real ramping up. of. All right. So that's Dr. Anthony Fauci again saying, well, actually, a lot of this stuff was already in place with the Trump administration. We're going to be ramping it up. There's some new ideas that we're going to utilize. But ultimately, the plan was already in place. We're not starting from scratch. You can't say that it was unusable or that there aren't things that we're going to be continuing. And when she says, well, is it delaying you at all? And he says, no, it's not delaying us at all. Is it delaying you in any way? No. And so they act as though Trump had absolutely no plans for distribution. There was nothing there. And then Joe Biden came in, fixed it all, managed it all, and then brought it out. That's simply not true. And in fact, when Joe Biden took the oath of office and became president, we already had about a million shots already distributed by that point. You can look at this graphic that 
looks over the vaccine rollout, and you'll see there that it goes from January to March. You'll see that on January 20th, which is the day that President Biden was inaugurated, there was already well over a million shots that had been issued. And they were, I mean, it's just astounding that they're trying to take credit on two counts now for things that were largely Republican accomplishments. Now, again, you might have a problem with the vaccine. You might think that the vaccine doesn't work or isn't nearly as effective as they should be or it has some risk. By the way, I share those concerns. But that's not what we're dealing with right now. We're specifically dealing with Democrats taking credit for something that was largely started by and run by Republicans and all that groundwork was already put into place. And so basically all they had to do was not drop the ball and screw it up and they could get credit for something that really they had nothing to do with. And the next claim I think might be one of my favorites. Um, they claimed that they invested 1.2 trillion in roads. Of course, this is a reference to the stimulus package or the uh, infrastructure package. And I use infrastructure loosely and I'm going to explain why in a second. And they say specifically, because you look back at the graphic, they don't just say infrastructure. They specifically say, you can look at it. 1.2 trillion investment in the water, roads, bridges, and broadband. So that's not just the big sweeping thing of infrastructure, which the Democrats have now deemed basically everything. Bernie Sanders even said like paid maternity leave and paternity leave. That's infrastructure. No, it's not. You old, retired, sad commie. It, no, nobody defines infrastructure that way. You're just saying that because you want to be able to call the bill infrastructure because infrastructure is a word that pulls very well with the average person and you don't want them to catch on what you're actually doing which is just sort of a watered down version of the Green New Deal. So that's what actually was in this package. But they're claiming specifically, not even just saying infrastructure, so they can't hide behind that. They're saying it was specifically water, roads, bridges, broadband. Not true. And you don't have to take my word for it. You can look at, for example, uh, this from Fortune. If I can go ahead and bring it up. There we go. Uh, if you look at this article from Fortune, infrastructure, as many people think of it, construction, improvement of bridges, highways, roads, ports, waterways, and airports, accounts for only $157 billion, or 7% of the plan's estimated cost. That's apparently what Voigt was referring to. The definition of infrastructure can be reasonably expanded to include upgrading wastewater and drinking water systems, expanding high-speed broadband internet service to 100% of the nation, modernizing the electric grid, and improving the infrastructure resilience. That brings the total to $518 billion or 24% of the plan's total cost. So even by the most generous, widest, broadest definition of the word infrastructure, and granted, this would also have included the broadband portion, which they did include in their meme. Even by doing all of that, it would only be a little less than a quarter of the bill's total cost. And so the idea that they invested $1.2 trillion in, in bridges and broadband and waterways and roads, no, that's not true. Not even close to true. At best, it would have been a quarter of that amount. It would have been, you know, somewhere in the, the, the $300 million range which is still a ridiculous amount, but the point is they're lying about the 1.2 trillion. They spent about 300 million, or sorry, um, what was it? 5.8, uh, 518 million, 518 million on those things, which accounted to about 24%. And then they spent the rest on their cronies and payoffs for people in political positions and to, to say that they're doing things, port bills, 
pork barrel spending to try to get the bill through. No, you only spent about 24% of that total cost on actual roads and bridges and infrastructure, that kind of thing. Now, granted, because you, you might be sitting there scratching your head going, well, where's the math in that? What happened is they actually scaled back the price a little bit, but they did it through accounting measures. And so that $1.2 trillion, uh, it would have been slightly less, but it still would have been roughly 24% of it. It wouldn't have been fi uh, 518 because that was an older version of the bill. But when they scaled it back, eventually they're going to be spending about $4 trillion. That That's going to be the real cost of it. But if you scaled it back, it would have been less than, than $518 million, but it still would have been around 24% of the bill's overall cost. And so either way, even by using the broadest and, and most generous definition of the word infrastructure, the idea that you spent specifically on roads, bridges, broadbands, and waterways, $1.2 is simply not true. Uh, most of this stuff, unfortunately, is things that the government never had any reason to get involved in anyway. For example, there's no reason for the federal government to get involved in everybody having broadband. Internet companies, because they are competitive and because they want to have that infrastructure in place, they were building that themselves. You could have done that without a dollar of taxpayer money. Now, it might have taken a little bit longer, but it would have not added to our debt and we would have gotten it for free. Now, you ask the average person, uh, do you want this new car for free if you wait a couple of years for it? Or would you rather pay the full amount, actually a little bit more than market value right now and have it? Well, a smart person would say, you know what? I'm just going to wait and get it for free. But the government's like, oh no, well, it's not our money anyway. So let's just go ahead and get it now. That's stupid. All of those things would have eventually happened regardless of whether the, the regardless of whether or not the government got involved in it. And this is something that affects Alabama more than most places, my home state. Because there's a lot of people out there in rural places that have to get some kind of satellite internet or some kind of workaround for broadband. And I, and I hate that for them, but that's part of the cost of living in a rural area. And I say this as a guy from Marbury, not exactly a thriving metropolis. And there were times where we didn't have internet because of that. And you know what? That was fine because that was part of the trade-off of getting to live out in the country. I didn't wait for, I wasn't like praying for the government to spend trillions of dollars of other people's money just so I could have faster internet. That's stupid. But the, the government apparently feels like this is their responsibility for some reason. Anyway, let's go ahead and go to the next claim. They also claimed that Trump spent $2 trillion and gave it to rich people. Now, for those of you who don't speak idiots, what they're trying to convey here is that in the tax plan that he put forward, which by the way, wasn't just Trump's plan. It was also passed by Congress. I know that this is hard for them to comprehend that you could actually get a law through without an executive order that would be passed through Congress. Uh, but, but, but it was actually passed through Congress and the tax cut did result in about $2 trillion of tax revenue, not, or not tax revenue out being brought in, but, uh, a two trillion dollar cut for the wealthiest of Americans. That is correct. That's what this is actually a reference to. However, they act as though that that was just a massive giveaway. First of all, not taking a person's taxes—that's not giving them something. That would be like me not mugging you and saying, "See, I gave you ten dollars by not mugging you and taking ten dollars from you." No, that's not how that works. That's their money, not your money. 
but it does sort of show the Democrats' hand and that really they believe that everybody's money is their money and they're being gracious enough to let you have some of it. But Trump shouldn't have been gracious enough to let them keep a little bit more of their money. But the thing is, this was not something that was just a giveaway to the rich people. Most people, most Americans actually did get a tax cut. And again, you don't have to take my word for it. You can take the New York Times, not exactly a right-wing conservative rag. So this is the New York Times from a couple years ago in, in 2017. Face it, you probably got a tax cut. The Tax Policy Center estimates that 65% of people paid less under the law and just 6% paid more. And in parentheses, the rest saw little changes to their taxes. So in other words, 94% of people either saw no change in their taxes at all, and then 65 of that percentage actually paid less under the law. So the idea that this is just a, a big giveaway to the 1%, no, it wasn't. There's 64 or more percent <laughs> that, that you have to include in all of that. And uh, claiming this is just absurd. The idea that giving, that not taking taxes from somebody is giving them money, that's simply not true. And by the way, of the six people that saw their taxes increase, it actually was only because one of the things that was included in that bill is they changed the way that they calculated state income tax. So the way that it was calculated before this bill went through is that it took your state income tax off the top and taxed you at whatever income was left over after your state income tax. This law did away with that. So the people that were actually paying more in taxes it was mostly people in blue states that have very high income tax rates. And so their taxes could have gone down if their state wasn't stupid. What was happening beforehand is the federal government was essentially subsidizing the tax burden of people living in blue states by taxing them less based on that. It was unfair. And so now what they're doing under the new Trump tax plan was actually fair. Unfortunately, with this new stimulus package that they put through, what they did was they actually put that back in place. And so, you know, you want to talk about Trump giving, again, I disagree with that verbiage, but if you're going to talk about Trump, you know, giving things away in terms of not making them pay more tax taxes, what this bill did with the way that they reverted it back to the way that they calculated after state income tax, that was just basically a payoff to people living in blue states. And they're subsidizing the idiotic tax policies of people living in blue states by giving them a quote unquote tax break. And so the Democrats can talk about that all they want, but that largely benefited wealthy people in blue states. Anyway, more importantly than all of this though, is that it does sort of illustrate that Democrats really see everybody's money as their money and they're just letting you keep a portion of it. They don't see it as something that you actually earned and belongs to you. Uh, for example, there was a winners and losers list on this $1.2 trillion infrastructure bill. There was a winners and losers list that Bloomberg put together. And these were the ones that they said won. In other words, they benefited from the $1.2 trillion infrastructure bill. Amazon, FedEx, UPS, every major airline, so American, Delta, Southwest, Northwest, all of that, so all the major airlines, steel producers, internet service providers, internet companies, so that would be ISPs, which would be like AT&T, Xfinity, 
Comcast, all of those companies, Charter, that kind of thing. And then also the internet companies themselves. So your Googles, your Facebooks, your, like they already said, Amazon, all of those big internet companies, they were the winners in this. And also nuclear energy, CVS, Signacorp, and United Health Group. So some of the biggest insurance and pharmacy providers in the world. That's an awful lot of big businesses for people that are supposedly just helping out the little guy. Somehow they benefited from the $1.2 trillion that were given. Now, some of these benefited indirectly. For example, uh, we were talking about broadband. They would have been, um, you know, that would have been put in place by the companies themselves. Well, now they just don't have to pay for it. And so it's not like the government is giving, for example, Charter or Comcast money to provide people internet. But now they're building infrastructure that those companies would have had to build beforehand, and now they're just getting it for free. So it's not indirect payments, but they're directly benefiting from the things that are in the bill. And so you'll notice there, a whole lot of big companies, a lot of Fortune 500 companies are directly benefiting from the Democrats' policy. And in the losers category that Bloomberg put together, they said cryptocurrencies and environmental polluters, which is true. And then they also said that electric car companies and green energy providers, so solar panel companies, that kind of thing, they were the losers, but their, their rationale was pretty funny. They were only the losers because they got less money than they were expecting to. In other words, they were expecting the, the Green New Deal to just have piles of money delivered to them, and they were the losers because they got smaller piles of money delivered to them. They're still directly benefiting, but not as much as they thought they were going to. And so somehow in Bloomberg's mind, getting giant piles of money from the government, that's losing because you didn't get as much as you were originally anticipating. I don't know how that wound up in the losers column, but that's how they, they calculated it. So the one thing that they did say was true. Trump did tweet a lot. That is accurate. He tweeted many, many things. He tweeted some smart things. He tweeted, I would say, mostly dumb things. Uh, some things that were of no consequence, some things that created whole news cycles, even though they really shouldn't have. But that is the one thing in this meme that I can say unequivocally, not misleading, not in any way untruthful. Trump did tweet an awful lot. So props to Occupy Democrats for at least including one true thing in this whole meme. Here's the thing that you should think about, though. Because we just went through systematically five of the claims made in this very short little synopsis of all the accomplishments Democrats have done since President Biden took office. They had to lie about all of them to make them look good. The fact that they had to lie to get, and, and about all of them, there wasn't even one thing in there that you could go, okay, well, give them that one. They had to lie about every single one, which indicates that they know that the presidency has been a disaster. They won't admit to it, and with the $1.2 they may even like the fact that it's going to a lot of, of big leftist donors and that kind of thing, but they have to sweep that under the rug and lie about that as well. And so they either know that the average American is not going to see that as an accomplishment, or they know it's not an accomplishment and have to lie about it completely. That's really should tell you all you need to know about the Democrat agenda. So what we're going to do is we're going to take a quick break and we'll be back with our Daily Dose of Stupid and our Chaplain's Report in just a second on Tactics. 
Speech isn't violence. Tolerance isn't love. Disagreement isn't hate. You're listening to Tactics with Caleb Cockwit. If you want to hear more, subscribe to him on YouTube, like him on Facebook, or follow him on Twitter at Tactics Radio. Now you messed it up. <laughs> You're stupid. And welcome back for the Daily Dose of Stupid today. There was a lot of stupid that went on in the Rittenhouse case, and I really didn't know how to sort through all of it. I had, you know, I'm thankful, since we're talking about thanks, <clears throat> I am thankful that the court acquitted him and actually came to the right decision. I think that it should have never gone to trial to begin with. But really, this entire trial, if you watched it, is a case study in stupid. There was so much stupid. There's no way that I could cover all of it in a daily dose of stupid you had. The whole display where he holds the gun with the wrong hand. You remember the prosecutor in his argument has the the water can and the, uh, the, the he's using to basically represent the fire extinguisher and the AR-15. And he puts it down and shows how he would have come up and aimed the gun. And that was supposed to be their their linchpin of proving that he was the aggressor. And then the, the other attorney just points out, but he's holding the gun with the wrong hand. Like, Kyle. Kyle would have had to have put it down, changed hands to his offhand to fit the picture that they were claiming showed that he, that he was holding it. Um, and another thing, too, if you're going to have one thing as a prop and one thing as the real thing, wouldn't you, especially since he pointed the gun directly at the jury when he did this, uh, wouldn't you have the real fire extinguisher and then have a prop gun as opposed to a real firearm that could harm someone? Like, if you're going to use one as a stand-in, you pick the gun, not the fire extinguisher. So that was pretty dumb. You had, like I just alluded to, where he actually points the gun at the jury. That was pretty stupid, especially since he didn't check the gun and clear it. He didn't have the breech open. So, you know, theoretically, there could have been a live round in that gun. You, you never point a gun at anybody unless you intend to destroy it. That's one of the first things they teach you in gun safety. And if you look at the pictures, you can actually see his finger on the trigger. So it's not even off trigger like a, a person that actually knows something about gun safety would have done. He actually has it on the trigger. So lots of stupid going on in that one. It was almost like he was doing his favorite Alec Baldwin impersonation. Yeesh. Uh, but he also suggested that silence means guilt, which is a direct violation of the Fifth Amendment. He also asked about whether or not you were playing Call of Duty and Kyle Rittenhouse had to explain to him on the stand that Call of Duty is a video game and not real life. And those two things are not the same thing. That was pretty stupid. He asked why he was putting out fires or why he was running from the fire at one point. And Cal Rittenhouse goes, because it was as a fire. <laughs> that was a good one. He asked why he was putting out fires again, because it was a fire. He suggested that he was not part of the Kenosha community, despite the fact that his dad and most of his extended family lives in Kenosha. And he also maintains a part-time job in that city and has lots of friends there, which is the reason he was defending that property in the first place is because it was a friend of his. So he tried to act like he was some kind of foreigner from thousands of miles away when really the kid has spends half his time in Kenosha anyway. And then he also, um, to me, the funniest, one of the funniest things is when he brought up witnesses, the prosecution's own witnesses affirmed that it was self-defense, including one of the guys that Kyle Rittenhouse shot saying, no, no, he didn't fire until I raised, raised the gun at him. <laughs> The lawyer just face palms right there. He knows he knows he's got nothing there. 
So there was a lot of stupid going on in this trial. There's no question about that. But I want to show with share with you today what I thought was by far the stupidest moment of the entire trial. This is in the closing arguments by Prosecutor Binger here. Can't claim self-defense against an unarmed man like this. You lose the right to self-defense when you're the one who brought the gun, when you're the one creating the danger, when you're the one provoking other people. Yeah, that defeats the purpose of guns. The whole reason that you have a gun is so that you may use it in self-defense, but according to your definition here, the you, you can't. If you have a gun, then you're automatically not acting in self-defense. When you bring a gun and you're the one causing the problem, which again, he's, he's basically assuming there that if you have a gun, you're only there looking for trouble. You are the problem. You're the one creating the danger by the mere fact that you happen to have a gun on you. It's absolutely ridiculous to suggest that. It cuts against everything that we know about self-defense with firearms. You would completely defeat the purpose of guns if that standard were applied to everyone. And by the way, you can look at this study. This was done by the, the federal government in 2013, and it was published by the National Academics of Science, uh, National Academy, sorry, of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine. Look at this. Defensive use of gun crimes is common a common occurrence, although the exact number remains disputed. Almost all national surveys estimate, estimates indicate that a defensive uses of the, by victims are at least as common as offenses used by criminals, with estimates of annual uses ranging from about 500,000 to more than 3 million in the context of about 300,000 violent crimes involving firearms in 2008. On the other hand, and, and it goes on to basically end itself out, but I mean, think about that. Now, obviously, because you're dealing with situations that are difficult to say how many lives would have been saved or how it would have played out differently if someone didn't have a gun, they're saying at minimum, it's about half a million cases of defensive use of firearms a year, and it could be as much as 3 million based on their estimates. Now, the actual number is probably somewhere closer to the middle, but those are the extremes. And so they're saying at minimum, you have about 200,000 more incidents of defensive uses of firearms then you do cases of gun crime, which would imply pretty strongly that a lot of these times where defensive use of firearm is used, the other person does not have a gun. And so by his standard, every person that's ever defended themselves with a gun where the other person didn't, that person should be locked away for murder. That's the standard he is presenting. So apparently there's anywhere from half a million to about 3 million more people per year that should be in federal penitentiaries or, or state penitentiaries, according to this clown. It's unbelievable how stupid that is. It cuts against everything we know about self-defense law. The idea that you're not allowed to defend yourself unless the other person also has a weapon that is somewhat comparable. What about the women that stop rapes with guns? Most of the time, their attacker does not have a gun. And so what they do is, the women that concealed carry, they pull out their pistol, they put the guy on the ground, which they should, if they believe that he's trying to rape them or is in the process of trying to rape them. And by the way, that is the number one thing that is the determinant as to whether or not a woman, an attempted rape is completed on a woman or not. Well, I guess it would cut on both, both genders, but usually it's women, obviously. 
That is the number one thing. It, it brings the odds of a rape being completed from 50% to 2% if the woman has a gun on her. And yet they act as though, apparently, according to this guy, if a woman shoots her attempted rapist, then she should be put in prison for murder. That's the standard he is presenting. That even if he's trying to rape you, as long as he's unarmed, if you're the one with the gun that pulls it, you're the one creating the dangerous situation. See, this is why it's important to, instead of just saying what your instinct says or what your emotions would lead you to believe, you actually play out these scenarios in your head and go, okay, if I applied the standard that I'm, that I'm espousing here, what would the end result actually look like? What would the end result be? It's clear this guy has never done that because if he gave it more than two seconds worth of thought, he would be like, oh yeah, well maybe there is a 95 pound woman that's defending herself against a 250 pound man with a firearm while he was trying to rape her that probably pre prevented a rape and may have saved her life. But they don't think about it from that standpoint. They think that every person that ever uses a gun in self-defense is some uh, MAGA hat wearing redneck that just wants to kill a bunch of people of minority status, which is hilarious because in this case, it was actually a bunch of white people that Kyle Rittenhouse shot. But they don't play that out. And what's unfortunate here is you almost feel like they would be unmoved by that, that they don't care if a few women have to get raped, if it means that they are able to keep people from having guns. I mean, it's kind of the same attitude they adapted and uh, adopted in Loudoun County, where that quote unquote boy in a skirt, which I mean is accurate. He is a guy wearing a skirt, went into a women's restroom and raped two women and they swept it under the rug. When they had someone directly ask if they had had any incidents of somebody in the now gender-neutral bathrooms doing anything wrong or untoward towards women, they said, nope, we don't know of any incident of this, even though the records show they knew about it at the time. They're like, well, if a girl has to get raped by a guy in a skirt, that's just the price of progress, right? No, that matters. And every single one of you should resign for having covered that up. Their agenda takes precedence over people that are legitimate victims that are being harmed by their policies. In their mind, that's, that's just the eggs you have to crack to make an omelet. And by the way, they adopted the same attitude with Kyle Rittenhouse. Well, yeah, the kid probably would have died if he didn't have a gun and couldn't have used it in self-defense. But, you know, that's, that's the price you got to pay for Black Lives Matter being able to ride in a city. That's just... That's, that's one more egg you have to crack in the omelet. See, they're willing to do the blood sacrifices because this is their religion. It is a competing religion to Christianity, and that is why they're perfectly fine with making a few sacrifices as long as it means their agenda gets through. They are perfectly okay with that. There were people on the left actively rooting for this kid to either be dead and not have the gun or to be put away for life because he did have the gun. See, that's the thing that's so powerful about this clip is this prosecutor is sort of accidentally saying the quiet part out loud, which is the left always assumes, regardless, if you're a guy using your Second Amendment right to carry a firearm, you're automatically the bad guy. No matter what the circumstances surrounding, it doesn't matter that Kyle Rittenhouse tried to de-escalate the situation. It doesn't matter that he, you know, had somebody actually pepper spray him and assault him, and he decided not to, even though he would have been within his right to defend himself with his firearm. He decided not to do that because he didn't want to take a life if he didn't have to. If he didn't feel like his life was being threatened or endangered, he decided not to do that with the person that pepper sprayed him. He decided 
to uh, show up and, and help people out, even some of the protesters that were there that night, help them out with, with medical aid. They put out fires where people were trying to push a dumpster into a gas station to blow it up, and he put the fire out. That's another thing that happened that they don't tell you about. And so it is really just astounding that all of this is happening. And it doesn't matter that all the facts, all the video evidence were in his favor. Everything showed very clearly that he was not the aggressor, that he was running from people, that he had a guy jump kick him in the head, that he had a person hit him in the head with the skateboard, that he had a person literally pull a gun on him and point it at him. And he neutralized all those threats. Doesn't matter that all the evidence went in one direction. They would have rather him not been able to get off simply because he was a guy carrying a gun. In their mind, that's enough to make you the bad guy. And it really is absurd. That was the insight into this person's mind. And, and, and that kid, frankly, showed far more strength than he had to, more than I probably would have, frankly, in, in that same situation. And so I admire him from, from at least that perspective. But it doesn't matter what you did or all the evidence is in your favor. They have to push their agenda, which is people having guns to defend themselves is bad, especially when you're attacking and defending yourself from people that politically aligned with us. That's the main thing. And I just, I can't imagine the level of restraint that that takes. But, you know, sometimes there are occasions where a guy with the gun is the bad guy and is the aggressor. I think the Ahmed Aubrey case is a really good case of that. As I said from the beginning when I saw the tape, it seems to me that the guys in the truck with the guns, they were the aggressors. And just because Ahmed Aubrey was unarmed, and they were, does not mean that he was not in the right. He acted in self-defense. And I think, I hope that they put these guys away for that because the video evidence seems to clearly suggest that Ahmed Aubrey did what any reasonable, rational person would when he was in fear for his life. And so in that occasion, the guys with the guns were the aggressors and were the ones that were acting not in accordance with the law. So what's the difference there? their behavior, and how they used it. See, the gun is not the problem. That's the case liberals always try to make. The gun's not the issue here. It's how the people with the guns behaved. Kyle Rittenhouse did exactly what he should have done and acted in legitimate self-defense because he was afraid for his own life. These other guys decided they were going to play vigilante and go after a crook and try to, which they didn't actually have any evidence that he was a crook. He was trespassing, but, you know, there were no charges filed, it wasn't even their land, and so they decided to go out and play vigilante. And then in that case, they were the aggressors and they should be held legally responsible for that. Ahmed Aubrey, like Rittenhouse, was acting in self-defense. The only thing that Aubrey did wrong, so far as I can tell, is not having a gun himself so that he could have fired back. That's what should have happened. But I digress. You see, the left wants you to be scared of exercising your rights. Because one of two things was going to happen at the end of the Rittenhouse case. Either criminals were going to be scared or they were going to be emboldened. Either rioters in the name of Black Lives Matter or Antifa or whatever else were going to have a case study to look at to go, oh, see, we can basically do whatever we want, hit people in the heads with skateboards, try to shoot at them, and if they attack us back, they're going to prison. That's, that has an emboldening power behind it. That has something that is going to cause those people to be more emboldened. Or we see what happened here. Hmm. 
maybe I shouldn't go out there and riot and burn stuff and tear things down because I can get shot. Especially if I attack somebody or try to attack someone else's property. And that's what should have happened. I'm genuinely glad that there may be a, a person that supports Black Lives Matter or Antifa that thinks, okay, I can go out and protest, but maybe it's not such a good idea to try to burn up a car lot or hit somebody in the head with a skateboard. Because they might shoot back and then they might get off scot-free, which is exactly what should happen if they're acting in self-defense. And so one of those two things were was going to happen regardless. The left wanted the criminals to be emboldened. They wanted them to feel like they have license to do whatever they want as long as it's a person that they politically disagree with. Luckily, the opposite actually happened. And hopefully, these violent criminals and savages will actually think twice before attacking a person because it could cost them their life, which it should if they're assaulting somebody. Now, the other part of the Daily Dose of Stupid today, because you are getting a double dose of Daily Dose of Stupid, it would, it would feel weird to deprive you of a second one on Thanksgiving. This one's not going to be nearly as long, though. Somehow CNN magically flipped on whether or not President Biden actually has the power to affect gas prices. So I'm going to show you a graphic here. These are two headlines that are nine days apart from the same publication, CNN, and the same author, Julia Horowitz. So let's go ahead and look at this right here. Two different headlines, nine days apart. Why Joe Biden can't do much to ease gas prices. And then nine days later, on November 18th, oil prices are finally falling. Thank China and Joe Biden. Uh, you know who really this is sad for? The Babylon Bee. Because the Babylon Bee is trying so hard to be a good satire site, and, and many times they succeed. But the left has gotten to the point to where there's really nothing to make fun of anymore. They're making fun of themselves. This really does look like a side-by-side -side comparison the Babylon Bee would have made up. But it's not. It's real. They're trying so hard to show for the Biden administration that not just the same news organization, literally the same author nine days after saying, look, there's nothing that the president can really do to affect oil prices. Says, hey, oil prices are finally going down. You can thank Biden for that one. The level of depravity and cognitive dissonance that must be involved in that is just tremendous. You know, when you shill and when you very clearly have a side that you're pulling for and you're trying to peddle propaganda for, it just becomes so obvious after a while. This is one of the more clear examples of it. But when that happens, you're going to lose your North Star. You see, what prevents a serious journalist from having something embarrassing like that happen is because they really care about the truth more than they care about whatever team they're pulling for. People at CNN don't do that anymore. To them, the agenda is the standard of truth. If it fits the narrative, if it fits the agenda that they desire, then it must be true. So for them, the thing that anchors them and the, th the lens through which they see the world is, does it fit the Democrat narrative? If so, yes, it must be true. If not, no, it must not be. So when people say Joe Biden is to blame for oil prices, but by the way, I just did a, a breaking the internet on this last week. So if you want to check out and see how much a president Biden or past presidents are to blame for gas prices, by all means, go and watch that segment because I put a lot of time and effort into it. This is kind of a follow up to that. But uh, what I was saying there with the president, see, in their mind, if, if you understand that that is how the liberal thinks, 
that if it fits the narrative, yes, rubber stamp, it must be the truth. If not, no, 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 it can't be true if it doesn't fit my already preconceived worldview. Then new information either confirms or denies that. So when people are saying Joe Biden must be at fault for the oil prices, the journalist sees that and goes, oh, well, that can't be right because that cuts against the Democrat agenda. Nope, must be false. Fact checked. And then when the exact opposite happens and people are starting to give him credit for it, they're like, oh, that does fit with my worldview. Yes, stamp of approval. I'm going to write an article about it. See, that is their anchor. That is the lens through which they see the world. And because of that, it has tainted their ability to perceive actual truth. Because somebody that is objective and actually does want to find what the truth is and actually cares about truth, sometimes they're going to get new information and they'll go, huh, didn't think that beforehand, but now that I have this new information, maybe have to adjust my worldview a little bit. You see, an honest broker of the truth is out there looking at information and they have a worldview, sure, because every human does. They have a bias and a worldview. But when confronted with information that challenges that, they go, hmm, maybe need to re-examine that a little bit. And then they might change a little bit on that. A person that is not an honest broker, that's just a political shill like this person, all they do is take in new information and go, huh, that doesn't fit my worldview, therefore it must be incorrect, and this is the thing that must be adjusted. You see, they want the entire world to change to fit their preconceived worldview rather than change their own worldview based on the information that the world gives them. It's a completely different way of reasoning and to, to try to seek out to find truth because they're more concerned about what they want to be true rather than what rather than what actually is true. If you just tell the truth, you don't have to keep up with the things that you've said. If you just are an honest broker about it, like I did with the what was going on with Biden is I've always said, even though I could use this as a sucker punch to go after Biden and say that, oh, he's all to blame for it. No, I can't do that, honestly, because I do think that presidents, regardless of their political affiliation, typically do tend to get both more credit and more blame for gas prices. Now, I do think that some of his policies directly led to those gas prices, and I explain all that in my other segment. But the point is, I can change my ideas, my ideas based on new information that I'm given. And I hold a standard because I hold to the truth. And when you hold to the truth, you don't have to worry about remembering everything that you've said and trying to match it up and make sure that it all fits. Because if, you, if your standard is truth, you don't have to play that game because it'll all wind up lining up naturally anyway. And if there is something that's messed up, you can go, well, you know, I got that one wrong. Sort of doing away with your constant need to be right about everything really is kind of a liberating superpower in a way, in that sense. So I guess, since this is the Thanksgiving episode, I am thankful for CNN, which is a constant source of amusement for me. Let's go to the chaplain's report. In 1775, the Continental Congress created the Chaplain Corps. Under the command of General George Washington, each soldier was required to attend worship service every Sunday. While other armies advanced on their feet, Washington's troops advanced on their knees. It's time for the Chaplain's Report with Caleb Colquitt on tactics. The Chaplain's Report today, we are actually going to be looking at David, but not in the series that we were going through in 1 Samuel. So we're going to be jumping to a different book with a different story that's not contained within 1 Samuel because it's a little bit later 
in David's life. But since I was thinking about what we should be doing for Thanksgiving and, and what are some ways to be grateful, what are some good Bible stories that sort of emphasize this? There's an episode where First Chronicles actually records the coronation of King Solomon. You may recall King Solomon is one of David's sons, and he is the one whom he chose to be king over his other children. And so because of this, they have a coronation, and this is actually the second coronation of King Solomon. So let's go ahead and look at First Chronicles chapter 29, verses 10 through 19, which reads, So David blessed the Lord in the sight of all the assembly. And David said, Blessed are you, Lord God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, Lord, is the greatness, the power, the glory, the victory, and the majesty. Indeed, everything that is in the heavens and on earth, yours is the dominion, Lord, and you exalt yourself as head over it all. Both riches and honor come for you, come from you, and you rule over all. And in your hand is the power and might, and it lies in your hand to make great and to strengthen everyone. Now, therefore, our God, we thank you and praise your glorious name. But who am I and who are my people that we should be able to offer as generously as this? For all things come from you, and from your hand we have given to you. For we are strangers before you and temporary residents, as our fathers were. Our days on the earth are like a shadow, and there is no hope. Our Lord God, all this abundance that we have provided to build you a house for your holy name is from your hand, and everything is yours. Since I know, my God, that you put the heart to the test and delight in, right, in uprightness, I, in the integrity of my heart, have willingly offered all these things. So now, with joy, I have seen your people, you who are present here, make their offerings willingly to you. Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, our fathers, keep this forever in the intentions of the hearts of your people and direct their hearts to you and give, up, and give my son Solomon a perfect heart to keep your commandments, your testimonies, and your statutes, and to do them all and to build the temple for which I have made provision. So an important part of that, that that may help you understand is that this is Solomon's coronation, the second one that he's been through. But it's also a dedication of the building materials for the temple. Because remember, before this time in Israel's history, there was no temple. You worshipped in the tabernacle, which was a tent. It wasn't a solid building. It wasn't made out of wood. It was made out of canvas and cloth and gold and a few other ornaments. But basically, it was just a really big tent. Now they're actually going to build a house, which David had desired to do, but the Lord told him, no, you're not allowed to do that. You can make provision for it, but your son Solomon is going to be the one that actually builds the temple. And so David is here kind of pouring his heart out in this prayer, thanking God for the fact that he has the ability and has been given the blessings in Israel to be able to acquire all these building materials and that his son is going to be the one that gets to erect the temple to God. And remember that this thing is one of the seven wonders of the world. There are royalty and dignitaries that came to this little bitty nation of Israel just to see the temple. We actually have record of this other in other places in the Old Testament. And so it is really an incredible blessing that has been bestowed upon Israel and to be a light to the rest of the nations. 
and you hear there, King David is kind of like, and who are my people that we get to be the ones to do this? Like he is just humbled and really taken aback at the fact that God cares about them enough and loves them enough to say this little bitty people in this little nation here, you guys are going to get, get to be the ones to build my temple and to be my example to the other nations. But did you notice through all of that, there's this spirit of gratitude and humility and understanding that David didn't get where he is and didn't acquire it because of his own greatness. He says over and over again, Lord, all these things are yours. You're the one that has the ability to do that. I give you the credit. Yes, these things have been gathered by me, but you're the one that gave them to me in the first place. I've just been the one to kind of bring them all together. And ultimately, this is all you anyway. And you gave me the ability even to do that. And so I think since we're talking about gratitude here, this is kind of David's Thanksgiving Day proclamation. And part of the reasons I picked this verse and, and picked this passage is because it reminded me a lot of what we started out the day with. You remember in reading Dwight D. Eisenhower's Thanksgiving Day proclamation that you see kind of the same sentiment there, that he's saying God is the cause, he's the reason for all of this, and because he has given us these things, we have a responsibility to use them to do his will. David is saying, I've amassed all this strength and greatness, and I have an army that is, is really powerful, and I have all these wonderful things, and you've given me the ability to even pass these things down to my son, but help me always remember, Lord, that they came from you and that I have an obligation to you to use those blessings in a way that would bring your will about. That's exactly what David is doing here in building the temple. In fact, there's even a passage earlier on. It's the one where David first sort of comes up with the idea of building a temple for God. He actually is sitting there and he goes, why is it that I get to live in this nice palace and, and we're still worshiping God in a tent? He literally feels guilty that he's been given all these wonderful things from God and that he feels like he hasn't really done his part to adequately give back and, and provide a similar or even greater house for God. And God's response, of course, to that is, and I find it really humorous, God's like, did I ever ask you for a house? I almost like, yeah, I don't really need one, but if you want to give me one, sure. And this dedication of that temple this coronation of a king, I think that that's significant because ultimately David is giving through a lot of humility and understanding that he has an obligation to use the gifts God's given him in a way that benefits all of mankind and his country. He understands the use of that power just like Dwight D. Eisenhower did. And more importantly, I don't think that it's insignificant that this is part of his son's coronation. You notice that he didn't talk a whole lot about Solomon until the very end in the last few verses there. Why? Because Solomon is not at center stage, and David gets that. David understands that the blessings that he's been given, including the ability to coronate his son over this country, is ultimately something that comes from God, and it's something that needs to be used to bring God's glory about. See, God's on center stage in David's heart, not Solomon. This is a good day for Solomon. He's very proud of Solomon and the ability that he has the ability to do this, but ultimately he realizes that God is what's important here. And I think what is going on is, I'm not saying that it's insincere, because I believe that this is 100% sincere, but I also think there is an aspect of this that we might be overlooking when it comes to David. And that is, I think that he's doing what a lot of dads do in the sense that He's modeling something for his son. 
I think that's really the purpose of all this. That David, because he wants his son to be a godly man and a godly king, that he's looking at this and going, I need to make it clear to my son that everything that he has, all the glory he's going to experience, all of the riches and power that I'm passing down to him, you don't use that for your own selfish desires. And unfortunately, Solomon did in many occasions. But he says, that's not the purpose of this. You have these things because you are a steward of God. You've been given these things to bring about his will. And the most important thing that you can do as I'm making you king is not to establish a name or a household for myself or continue our lineage or any of those other things that most earthly kings would have emphasized. The most important thing you can do is make sure that these provisions that I've made for you to build God's house, that needs to get done. God should be at the forefront of everything you do as king. And he's modeling that out in front of his son and making sure his son realizes, look, your accomplishments as king, they don't come from you. They come from God. And you need to give him the glory for that. I mean, I don't know about you, but my dad did stuff like this all the time. Not exactly like this, obviously, but it was not uncommon for my own father to try to emphasize certain things when he was teaching me a lesson about making sure that, that God is recognized in all of that. And there were certain times where he would be, for example, in front of the congregation, where he would be preaching or leading a prayer or doing Lord's table, where I'm not saying that he wasn't motivated by other things or that it wasn't good for the whole congregation, but it was really more aimed at me. And I think that's what David is doing here is he's praying and he's kind of doing a sermon and a lesson in conjunction with his prayer. I think that he's doing this to praise God, but I think he's also doing it because he knows his son needs this example. That he needs this encouragement and he needs to be reminded on the day of his coronation where everybody's focused on him. That really everyone should be focused on God and what God has done for this country. I think that it, it really does show that David was a caring father and he most wanted his children to follow in his footsteps, not for the increase of David's own fame and glory, but because of the glory of God. And I think David knows that the ultimate act of thankfulness is faithfulness. That The correct response to gratitude is to behave in a way that reflects that of a grateful person. It's easy to say thank you. It is. Anybody can say thank you. Whether they mean it or not, they can be lying about it. But if you really want someone to feel gratitude, you have to behave in a grateful manner. I don't know how many times where when I had disappointed my parents, the reaction was something to the effect of, you know, do I not clothe you and take care of you and provide for you and all those things. Now, on the surface level, speaking from a strictly logical perspective, that sounds kind of weird and goofy and almost like they're trying to, to get some kind of praise or adoration out of it. But that's not what's actually going on. And I think those of you that have kids probably understand this. It's not trying to subjugate your kids. It's trying to make them think about, okay, I have been given all these things from my parents. And they do all these things for me. And all they're asking is for me to, you know, clean my room or cut the grass or whatever else it is. Why don't I do that? Because a grateful person that really appreciates the things that have been done for him would want to do those things, would want to listen to their parents. Well, how much more true of that, uh, true is that for 
our Heavenly Father, who has given us literally everything, including the gift of life. How many times has God looked down on us and seen us groan because we you know, have to get up early to go to church or go out and, and help poor people or, or whatever with some kind of charity work that we're doing? And we kind of grumble about it and we don't have a great attitude. And God's just sitting up there going, have I not given you literally everything? Have I not given you the means to help these people? Have I not blessed you with these things so that you may do my will? I think understanding that and having a true gratitude for the things that God has given us is going to make us more faithful. Because ultimately, gratefulness is the antithesis of pride, which I would argue is the deadliest of all sins. And so if we really want to be people that follow God, we can't just be ungrateful kids that go around and thinking we deserve everything or we're entitled to the things that we've been given. We ultimately have to obey because that's better than affection or lip service. That's better than just saying thank you to God for everything rather than actually behaving in a manner that shows that we have, we have gratitude. This is a responsibility that we have with the blessings that God has given to us. And I would ask that all of us remember that when we're celebrating the National Day of Prayer and Thanksgiving tomorrow. Stay the course, friends. Thank you for listening to the Tactics Podcast. Tactics is a production of Not Ashamed Media. Any opinions expressed on this program are those of the host and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of our business partners or sponsors. Graphics by Jessica Dawson. Video production by Jackson Dean. Broadcast studio provided by Faulkner University. Location studio provided by Delreda Church of Christ. Copyright 2021.